Freethinkers, and welcome back to another episode of the Free Thought Project podcast. My name is Jason Bassler, and joining me today is the Free Thought Project Editor-in-Chief, Matt Agarist. Our guest this week is the one and only Sterling Lujan. Sterling is a longtime friend of the Free Thought Project, but also absolutely brilliant with his understanding about the world of crypto. He's an author, an innovator, and an anarchist. He worked for years as the Bitcoin.com communications ambassador. He travels the world speaking at different crypto events and is about as close to an expert about crypto and Bitcoin as we know. Welcome to the Free Thought Project podcast, Sterling. We're excited to have you here. I know we tried to make it work last week, uh, but as productive, busy people often have last minute schedule changes, we weren't able to actually sit down for a conversation. So uh, we're recording two podcasts this week. Uh, We didn't really want to miss the opportunity to have a discussion about several recent topics that seem to be on a lot of people's radar. But first, uh, you mentioned last week that you were at a crypto event in Tulum, Mexico, and you were doing some public speaking and, and business development. Uh, last month, you were in Spain talking about Bitcoin. Seems like you're all over the place. Uh, can you share with us what you're doing down there in Tulum and what your talk was about? Yeah, I can certainly share a bit about it. For anybody who's not really familiar with uh, what's going on in the in the crypto ecosystem, Mexico has become a hub for crypto people. And something that I've talked about a lot is people in the crypto space are becoming more and more wary of over-regulation and regulatory shenanigans by the U.S. and by Canada. So there's a concept called crypto-refugeeism. And a lot of people, I think, are fleeing places like the U.S. and Canada because of the the fears uh, around either being targets by the nation state or simply being regulated out of the market. So human capital flight and crypto is a very real thing. We can get into the reasons for that later, but back to the point, one of the reasons I'm in Mexico is because we have a company called uh, CryptoMex. It's a cryptocurrency, a custodianless cryptocurrency exchange platform, and we are beginning to build out that platform in Mexico because Mexico has, and and this is really Latin America in general, has a more open, they're more open-minded toward building out uh, cryptocurrency technologies and nascent technologies in in Mexico and really throughout Latin America. So a lot of people in the industry are coming into Mexico because there's way, way less uh, regulatory stringencies right now. So if you're building a money services business or an MSB that is related to crypto, it's easier to do that in Mexico. So one of the reasons I'm in Mexico is because our business is a headquartered there in uh, Acapulco, actually. And we are starting to make our business development relationships and build those out in Mexico. So the reason I was in Tulum is Tulum has a very active uh, cryptocurrency scene. They have a lot of crypto refugees, expats, uh, freedom lovers, and people who have come to be part of that community. So it was really just a, a cryptocurrency, a normal cryptocurrency meetup on Wednesday that had uh, a ton of people. So I spoke at that event on cryptocurrency, privacy, security, the importance of keeping your own keys, because you guys have probably heard recently in Canada, the the government has actually gone about trying to freeze people's bank accounts. Actually, they did f- freeze people's bank accounts. I think it was that the, the trucking movement, some anti-COVID restriction stuff that happened. And, and now the the Canadian government has actually said that they want to go after people's uh, cryptocurrency and they want cryptocurrency. They want to be able to freeze people's accounts on exchanges. Mm-hmm. So 
uh, Jesse Powell, the CEO of, of Kraken, and Brian Armstrong, the CEO of Coinbase, came out and tweeted that people need, ironically, really, that people need to have their own wallets, their self-custodied wallets, and keep their funds there so it's not freezable by the state. And actually, one of the state regulators informed the Canadian police that Brian Armstrong and Jesse Powell had made these tweets, so they put them in the crosshairs of the of the police in in Canada. So I don't know if there have been or will be any repercussions to that. But the, the, that's what I talked about during the talk. But I also was taking uh, the time who are willing or open to building businesses and building payment rails alongside of our, our company. And there's a, a lot of really cool people there doing a lot of really cool things. So that's the reason I've been spending a lot of time in Mexico and in Latin America, uh, speaking at events, uh, plus uh, developing a business because huge, huge, massive things are happening crypto-wise in, in Latin America. Uh, you guys are probably familiar with uh, El Salvador, obviously, having, quote unquote, legalized Bitcoin as legal tender. I was actually there for the delegation and, and helped speak to the government and educate them on on crypto and getting into it. And one of the reasons I think this is so important anyway, that more people come to places like Mexico and Latin America to grow the crypto ecosystem is because Latin America is going to end up being a hub uh, for crypto. And it's unlikely the U.S. is going to pursue it as heavily because crypto is a direct threat to the hegemony of the dollar as a global reserve currency. Right. Certainly an exciting time right now. And uh, yeah, it, it looks like the, the mainstream sentiment and opinion is starting to kind of change. In fact, I just Googled El Salvador and Bitcoin. And the, one of the first articles that came up was uh, Business Insider. Here's why El Salvador's Bitcoin experiment might work. So it's kind of interesting to see how this shift is is currently taking place. And of course, yeah, not so much uh, of that enthusiasm in the States because they're kind of locked down with their uh, you know, the, the, the policies and, and system that we have here. And, and of course, they don't want that to change in any way, shape or form. But uh, so y you're not just an enthusiast, right? Like it's clear here, like you're you're an expert. Uh, you've you've spent the, you know, the past few years traveling around, uh, speaking to different people and at different places about Bitcoin. Um, you also served at Bit as Bitcoin.com's communication ambassador. Um, so you probably have one of like the best understandings that I know uh, of and, and grasps on crypto, uh, Bitcoin, probably out of all my internet friends. And I'm sure you you learned a lot and picked up a lot uh, of knowledge while you served in that role. Uh, can you tell us about that experience and how that kind of puts you on the path you're on today? Yeah, absolutely. So when I worked with Roger, Roger Ver at Bitcoin.com, that, that was still really the very early days in in crypto and during during that time the 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 quote-unquote scaling debate was sort of going uh, f full tilt and without getting too technical all that really means is uh, when I say scaling debate Bit Bitcoin has had problems with scaling uh, effectively and there were some people who didn't want to scale it meaning allowing for more people to interact with that blockchain and to conduct uh, transactions without uh, super high fees and with more speed and, and efficiency. Uh, but for various reasons, people push back against that. And of course, Roger ha has always been uh, for the idea that Bitcoin should be peer-to-peer -peer, uh, currency, which is indeed what the creator of Bitcoin, Satoshi Nakamoto, whoever that is or whatever group that is, uh, claimed that it should be. But a small group of individuals that became a larger group of individuals said they would prefer Bitcoin to act as digital gold. So when I was working at Bitcoin.com, uh, I had always really supported the idea that Bitcoin should be used as cash and that a really important component of, of really Bitcoin and the cryptocurrency ecosystem at large is that mass adoption is going to be a key factor in not only growing the adoption of cryptocurrency and the cryptocurrency ecosystem, but also of getting more people to support it philosophically, uh, to use it. And uh, by the same token, 
destabilize uh, fiat currencies hold on global economies and individuals. So that was really the primary thing that I learned at Bitcoin.com being within the ecosystem uh, very early. And I still am a huge supporter of mass adoption. And so one of the things that I'm doing right now with Cryptomex and Cryptospace, by the way, those are just sister companies. There, there are companies. They, they, the idea here is that we get more people involved in crypto by being their institutional broker or their trader where we're providing them uh, with more crypto. But yeah, one of the big pieces of my Bitcoin.com experience was traveling around. I really just did speak at all of these events on the ideas behind security and privacy with cryptocurrency. And also with the uh, notion that really Bitcoin was is meant to change the world. It's supposed to be a paradigmatic shifting technology that takes power uh, away from the, the kleptocrats and puts it back into the hands uh, of the people. So I have really taken that mindset uh, with me onto cryptos, crypto space and crypto mix. Plus, I developed all of these relationships along the way with a bunch of different important actors in the space. So that's really helped us to grow uh, our, our business in Mexico, but also more importantly, to continue not only preaching this idea that we should use crypto to promote more freedom and more liberty for humankind, uh, but also that we can practice what we preach by actually building and innovating the tools that are going to be required to have a, an immediate and effective impact on the world. You know, you guys know I'm a huge fan of education and getting people to or, or to help them understand where we're going into the future. But I also believe if we're not practicing what we preach and building and acting on what we believe, then we're not going to be able to get to where we're going. So right now, I'm finally in a position where I can leverage a lot of the relationships that I made and the lessons that I learned at Bitcoin.com and apply them to where we're going with the the influence and the relationships and the business uh, that I have right now. So that's been really a huge influencing factor, uh, being with Bitcoin.com and hanging out and getting to know, hanging out with Roger, getting to know him and and really getting to understand his his view and grasp on the world. So the, it's been a huge influence and experience overall. That's actually where we met you, man. You were uh, I know Jason met you like a few weeks before I did, but you were speaking at an event, you know, that uh, I think it was the the Mises Caucus in New Orleans is where I met you. Um, and you had you had you weren't you, you were a speaker there, right? I'm not I'm not losing it. No, <laughs> you're, you're not. You're not. You were just there. All, then. <laughs> no, no, no. You're not losing it at all. I actually, yeah, I, I did speak at the event. Correct. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> okay. And then again in uh, in Houston, um, I mean, you gave me a uh, you gave me a uh, Bitcoin shirt or Bitcoin.com shirt, and it was a large, and I put it on. It looked like it was a large for my son. <laughs> 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 um, but uh, no, so like, so what you mentioned earlier about uh, scalability, you know, uh, that's like one of the main problems with Bitcoin. And we saw that over the last year or so is that when people try to use them for transactions and peer to peer purchases, the fees are astronomical. You know, it doesn't make sense in in any type of small purchases, which is why we see all these other spinoff coins that, that people like Max Kaiser like to call shit coins, you know, but they actually have lower fee rates and everything. So like like Bitcoin uh, cash, for instance, you know um is 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 do you like do you see like a particular one of these coins that's uh that's easier to use or do you see that same problem with bitcoin being uh like as far as mass adoption going because of these the the fees or anything like that yeah look this is an interesting discussion i i right out of the gate i'm not a maximalist of any kind i don't support one cryptocurrency over the others i'm not like a one cryptocurrency to rule them all kind of guys. And I don't absolutely loathe or hate uh, Bitcoin or Bitcoin's uh, community. Yes, I disagree with the direction that the community went. I think that they should have just scaled uh, the blocks and allowed for easier, quicker, faster, better transactionality. But that's not the direction that the ecosystem went. So that's fine. I still have hope that good things will happen as we move into the future. But I am definitely more of a fan of cryptocurrencies that have more utility and usability in terms of uh, easier and quicker transactions. So still to this day, I use Bitcoin Cash for uh, transactions and for trading. 
I am also a huge fan of the Hive network, which is a fork of Steemit. I, I use all the time, I use their second layer solution, which is a DEX or a decentralized exchange called Tribal DEX. And all the transactions on that platform happen at the speed of light. They're instant. And one of the really cool things is if you're doing trading, they have what's called wrapped tokens. So you can actually more or less have Bitcoin or have Ethereum or any other of the major cryptocurrencies on that platform in the form of a wrapped token. And one of the cool things is, say you're using Ethereum and you're you're maybe you've done a trade to get wrapped Ethereum on Tribal Dex instantly. If you ever want to have that wrapped Ethereum just turn into actual Ethereum on the Ethereum chain, you can just send it to your say, MetaMask wallet and bam, you've got now now you've got Ethereum. So the wrapped Ethereum turns into Ethereum. But here, here's the, here's the whole point. What's going to end up happening? in the crypto ecosystem, and this is not too far down the road, there are going to be more of these wrapped tokens that are basically proxies for the real thing. And all of these blockchains are going to some degree be interoperable. So they're going to be talking to each other and we're going to be able to transact from one chain to another, either through wrapped tokens or through what's called uh, atomic swaps, which just means the ability to trade one cryptocurrency from one chain onto another. And what this is going to do is open up the playing field for more uh, nuanced kind of uh, financial transactionality, more uh, interaction between cryptos for building different types of uh, not only second layer solutions, but also for uh, other types of utility. Uh, For instance, just as an example, uh, being able to play uh, games that are blockchain games and earn money for those games using different types of tokens because now all the all the ecosystems are connected is just one possibility. I mean, we can already play really cool games like play to earn games right now on on one chain and earn tokens on that chain, and that's a, a, a nice innovation. But now imagine being able to connect all of these blockchain systems together and maybe even have a choice of what type of tokens we earn on a game because they are connected. This is just one really simple example of what's happening in in space. But yes, I'm I'm a massive fan of the ease of transactionality because it's what's going to allow the space to continue to to grow. And to be fair, Bitcoin is uh, attempting to solve this with a second layer solution, right, with the, the, the Lightning Network, which I was skeptical about early on, but it does seem to be working uh, a bit. But the problem with the some of these second layer solutions, especially with this, is that it's still just going back to MasterCard or Visa. So it's like MasterCard or Visa 2.0, because now you've you've erected the gatekeepers again, and it's possible to freeze or seize funds. So you really don't. It's not your keys, not your crypto kind of situation all over again. So as long as people understand that if they're using these second layer solutions, uh, their funds aren't always safe. So that, that's one of the reasons why Roger has been a huge proponent of just scaling the the blockchain, which was really the original intent uh, of Satoshi and some of these early crypto entrepreneurs anyway. It's to, to scale the blockchain and allow people to transact to their heart's content while, while also holding uh, their own keys, right? Because this is the real sticky wicket of cryptocurrency in the modern day. A lot of, a lot of people are still so used to having or to relinquishing their financial responsibility. So they let other people manage their keys for them. And uh, that causes all types of moral hazard in the form of uh, theft, uh, seizures, fraud, etc. So our, our whole mission and my personal mission is to continue to educate people that if you're keeping your funds on an exchange or a second layer solution, that, that those funds aren't actually yours. You're, you're delegating your right to your own money to someone else to manage for you, and it's effectively not yours at that point. So this is actually a huge deal in the space, and it's something that I think a lot of companies are going to start trying to tackle and are trying to tackle by building either uh, more DeFi networks, that is decentralized finance, and or more uh, custodianless type of exchanges uh, with payment rails into the, the fiat system so people can actually uh, move out of those systems and then own their own private keys to their crypto once they buy it immediately. I actually wanted to get into that at some point. So I'm glad that you 
brought that up, but wow, you could make money. I mean, earn tokens anyway by uh, playing video games, huh? That's that's pretty amazing. I was I was certainly excited about uh, you know earning some tokens through Mines and, and a few other uh, platforms, social media platforms, just for posting. But uh, that certainly flips the whole. You won't make anything of your life. You'll be a loser if you play video games argument on its head. So uh, that's that's pretty amazing. Oh, yeah, 100 percent. And I just I got a, a little I had more of a bird's eye view of that whole topic. But let me dr- drill down a bit so I can give someone, you know, give your guys's audience and you guys some uh, real real world value of what you can do right now. So there's a game that I play called Gods Unchained. It's uh, basically Magic the Gathering meets Hearthstone. And the companies that have helped develop this game, one of the second layer solutions is called Immutable X. All the cards are NFTs and they can be traded on Immutable X. They all have their own value. So it's like having a real world card collection that has value, except it's it's digitized. And obviously a lot of NFTs are being created that are, maybe it's artwork so that it might have subjective value to someone, but this is real utility on the blockchain right now this is actually built on the the ethereum network so you can play the game it's very competitive extremely fun you can earn their token it's called god's tokens i i play uh nightly sometimes i play with john vibes he's actually into the game he plays a lot so him him and i actually we just we just played a game last night but we i i play intermittently when i have time in the evenings and i earn god's tokens i collect the cards the value of the cards are uh, pretty consistent. There's a pretty large player base. And yeah, I can earn. And there's some people who play so competitively and professionally that they can, it, you can't quite make a complete living off of it, but you can do really, really well if you play a lot and you play in the upper echelons. But yeah, it's it's God's Unchained. So anybody who wants to go to godsunchained.com uh, can do that. I, I won't get into the other games, but also a popular one that uh, my friend Kenny Palantario plays is called Splinterlands. So you go to splinterlands.com uh, and also get into playing Splinterlands. It's just not my type. It's a different kind of card game, but all the cards also are NFTs. Uh, you can earn tokens. Uh, there's staking mechanisms, so you can stake on their platforms and you can get uh, liquidity rewards in the form of their tokens for doing that. So there's really all kinds of ways for the, the average person to make and earn money and make a living just getting into uh, crypto and also not starting with much. Because, you know, there's still a lot of people out there who criticize uh, crypto as being this extractive, exploitative technology. Uh, but in, in my experience and in, in my travels around the world and talking to people, this has been a liberatory technology that has pulled people out of the uh, depravity and poverty that they've previously lived in so the and and that's right you know i was a walmart store manager just a a small anecdote uh, making forty thousand dollars a year working sometimes upwards of 50 60 hours uh, a month right or sorry a week and this has the cryptocurrency completely saved me from that It, it allowed me to get out from under that environment and allowed me to travel the world have not only uh, financial freedom, but also to have a personal freedom to travel and to use my time as as I see fit. And, and the way that I use it, of course, is to spread the the gospel and the good news of uh, cryptocurrency. And it's not this evil, extractive, exploitative technology that everyone makes it out to be. It actually has the power to empower people and to allow people to change their their life in, in a real fundamental, personal, intimate way. Hell yeah, man. I just had to bookmark godsunchained.com. <laughs> it looks like something my son's going to love. It, it really does sound like a whole nother universe, you know, especially to people who are unfamiliar with a lot of this terminology and jargon. But I mean, just like anything else, when you invest your time and energy into it and start to kind of understand the world, and it, it will have benefits. And uh, I, I appreciate you sharing a few of those. And uh, definitely a big shout out to John Vibes. That's a, a former Free Thought Project writer for years. In fact, if you go back to some of our very first podcasts, you'll hear John Vibes on there. Uh, unfortunately, he kind of got out of the the journalism world and is uh, kind of focused on other things now. Um, but yeah, shout out to John. 
Um, so I, I'm glad you did mention a, a few minutes ago the the people's currency uh, because that's that's more or less how I think of Bitcoin as well. You know, it's decentralized; it's not issued by a government. But you know, we we certainly have a lot of Bitcoin and crypto skeptics that we cross paths with, uh, not just on the Free Thought Project, but online in general. And a lot of these people claim to be free thinkers, and I'm sure some of them are, right? But they pride themselves as being like critical thinkers and and conspiracy theorists and they have like a, a deep deep distrust surrounding Bitcoin, uh, which is ironic because it's like a, a non-government issued money. And, you know, some have even speculated it could end central banks around the world if enough people adopted it and it could cut off the welfare warfare state. Um, so do you see like the irony in this, like, you know, these so-called critical thinkers are so quick to slander a new technology uh, with so much potential and we've already seen and know the harmful and dangerous effects of government-created fiat uh, currency. So, I mean, have you experienced these, these types? Oh, yeah, all, all the time. And it's getting more intense. The, the critiques and the fear are being amplified. Mm -hmm. And everywhere around the world that I, that I go, there's always uh, people who are not only skeptics, but uh, hi highly critical, and some of them are even so so critical that they have made it their uh, mission in life uh, to to critique and to attack uh, cryptocurrency and the and the cryptocurrency uh, communities. And I I want to we can discuss the reasons why I think people are behaving this way, but I want to provide sort of one of the critiques that I hear very often of a Bitcoin and Ethereum and some of the other technologies specifically. And it's one of the ones that have reached a fever pitch. So a lot of people say, why are you using cryptocurrency? Why are you promoting Bitcoin or Ethereum? These technologies use so much energy. They're so wasteful. So there's sort of this argument from uh, the, the green school of thought or the green perspective that this technology is going to destroy the world. So I want to first address that. Uh, one is th a lot of these folks are so focused on the alleged evils of cryptocurrency that they don't even look at the traditional financial sector. There have been studies around this that have already painted a picture that the traditional financial sector, all of the banks, all of the printing, all of the printers, all of the all of these institutions that are ancillary to the to, to these institutions are using way more in a tremendous amount of energy to cut down all the trees to make all of the money to run all of the banks to run all of their their energy all of their printers all of their networks so cryptocurrency in comparison to the traditional financial sector is using way less energy but i i also want to point out that even at face value, the energy usage that say Bitcoin, it, its impact is minimal because a lot of Bitcoin miners actually use a mi mixture of traditional energy and renewable resources. And it's a pretty high mix of uh, renewable resources. I think something like 67, 60-ish percent of miners are using are also using a mixture of renewable energy resources and i think some i think it was cambridge who did a study that suggests that some 30 percent of bitcoin miners are using uh, wholly renewables resources and this really makes sense right because if you're a bitcoin miner you can't afford to pay extremely high energy bills because the the rewards right now the, the the hashing difficulty for Bitcoin is re it's really hard to mine and to make money and earn rewards because it's been around for so long, right? And the mining difficulty increases over time. So what miners are actually doing is they're finding clever or nuanced ways to uh, gain access to cheaper energy. And oftentimes it is renewable. So using something like hydro electrical energy for your your mining is very is feasible and it's cheap and a lot of companies are doing that also this is actually really cool guys in texas there's a company uh that it's an oil company and they are you know they do oil fracking right and when when they're drilling for oil uh they 
they hit oftentimes hit pockets of natural gas. It's called fl flare gas. And a couple of guys who were really brilliant said, why don't we actually bring some generators in and and some cryptocurrency and some Bitcoin miners and actually uh, channel this flare gas into these generators and use it to mine Bitcoin? Because this flare gas is, it creates a, a ton of uh, environmental uh, pollution. But these guys use cryptocurrency, Bitcoin specifically, to solve uh, th this this problem of, of flare gas. So interestingly enough, and ironically, uh, Bitcoin is actually providing uh, a, a unique use case for helping to protect the environment from excess harms in different in industries as a way of diverting power or energy away from harmful use cases uh, to uh, use cases that are beneficial, like Bitcoin mining or the creation of value. And, and this isn't even in considering other ideas el salvador for instance those guys have they've talked about the idea of using the their volcanic energy their geothermal energy to start a mining operation there and there are already some that exist actually in in south america and elsewhere but if you this is totally unharnessed energy in most places you can just plug your miner into a volcano and then just take all of the energy the geothermal energy from that volcano to mine uh, Bitcoin. And for any proof of work uh, consensus mechanism that cryptocurrency leverages uh, can, can potentially use this type of renewable energy. So all of this wow. energy that would be wasted or uh, otherwise put into the environment in a negative uh, way is actually being harnessed by cryptocurrency for in, to do environmental and ecological good. So this is actually... Uh, it contraindicates all of these ideas that the, the Green School of Thought has really put out as propaganda against Bitcoin uh, and crypto as being in environmentally damaging. It's just not uh, not true and it's it's propaganda. And this is one of the most persistent and consistent arguments that I hear from Bitcoin detractors everywhere I go right. online. So I've spent a lot of time really diving into these arguments and trying to uh, understand where, where the truth is. And this th this is the truth, that we're going to continue to solve these problems in very nuanced ways in our ecosystem, but we're also going to offer alternatives to problems that currently exist in different industries, energy-wise, uh, with Bitcoin and other cryptocurrencies. So it's really, it's, a, it's an amazing thing that's happening. And uh, Bitcoin and crypto people are actually doing a lot of good uh, for the environment. Whereas, and you look at the traditional financial ecosystem, those guys aren't don't even really care about using renewable energy resources. They're certainly not thinking about plugging their their monopoly money printing press into a, a volcano <laughs> and then put, pushing out more <laughs> fiat currency so they can control more people and initiate more wars across the world. That's certainly not happening. And don't forget, the U.S. military is one of the largest polluters in history, uh, a bigger polluter than as many as 140 countries. So I know it's not directly related, but if it's a government-issued currency, then, I mean, you still have to take that into account as well. But, um, yeah, I think the, the main concerted smear by the mainstream was the environmental issue with Bitcoin. So I appreciate you touching on that. It, it makes sense why there's so many people who uh, probably take to that as being their biggest objection. Uh, here's another one. Here's a, another very, very common objection. And I really was interested to hear your take on it. So I actually saw this a couple of days before last week when we were supposed to have our, our original conversation and I screenshotted it because I thought it was perfect. It encapsulated exactly what I see so often on the internet. So quote, this was a post on Facebook. How is it one can understand that the new world order will establish a cashless society with a social with a social credit system and take complete control over monetary assets and yet simultaneously believe that crypto is the greatest invention in the history of mankind? So I'm sure you've, you've heard that a lot. It's the cashless society argument. Um, and then what probably goes hand in hand with that is. Uh, well, what happens if the power goes out or if there's an EMT? Do you mind uh, taking on both of those for us? Uh, yes, uh, absolutely. So the, the first argument, you're right, is maybe even more ubiquitous or about the same as the, the argument from power or gr the green energy sector. So, uh, yeah, the argument goes that in a 
the government or the New World Order or the Illuminati or whoever is trying to create a cashless society so that they will, they will be able to uh, control us more and also be able to seize our funds, control our finances. And so, so here's the thing about this argument. It's a partial partial truth because it depends on the direction that we go. Sure, if uh, people listen to governments and they embrace what's what's being called CBDCs or central bank digital currencies, which aren't actual cryptocurrencies that these guys can control. They can print up as much as they want. They have a button they can press to freeze people's accounts. Yes, then now we're going into the direction of a totalitarian uh, financially bereft society, and that's definitely not the direction that we want to go. However, the reality is is that we finally have a truly competitive marketplace for currencies and digital assets, and it's it's really not in a government's best interest or a new world order's best interest or the Illuminati's best interest or whoever to support traditional cryptocurrencies like Bitcoin. And here's the simple reason why. Because they can't automatically print out as much Bitcoin as they want. The amount that is ever going to be created is set at 21 million units. And that makes it extremely difficult for governments to control people the way that they prefer, because one of their the biggest tools in their arsenal is the ability to hyperinflate the currencies in, in the world in order to uh, basically act as a form of soft theft on the population by causing prices to hike. And also they're able to uh, have first access to the money that they print before it's devalued. So they can hand it out to all of their friends and their friends get to spend it first or to the banks and they get to play with the money before anybody else, especially before the, you know, the peasants on Main Street versus Wall Street. So you can't do this with Bitcoin. You can't be a functional government and print out and use as much money as you want when the supply is necessarily restricted by the algorithm that it's built on. And this is an extremely important point because the way that people are controlled is through the ability for governments and tyrants to control the circulation and the supply of those funds. So uh, there's a really good book on the subject uh, that I recommend by, uh, uh, I think his name is Safadine is, is his last name. It's called the Fiat Standard. So he basically promotes or shares this idea where the the fiat standard is, is is a comparison to the bitcoin standard so he says what does this look like what does a fiat standard look like compared to a bitcoin standard so he delineates all of these these features and these characteristics of fiat currency versus bitcoin and why a fiat standard is not tenable for a sustainable and a freedom-based society, right? Because if a government has control of the money, then they're able to control all of the people, coerce the people. Uh, they're able to initiate uh, massive warfare. It, you just can't do that with crypto because your money supply will run out and you won't be able to uh, be the the tyrant that you wish you you could be on a fiat standard. So so the so the process of decentralization and having competing currencies really makes it a, a huge challenge for the overlords uh, to do to do what they want, unless of course uh, CBDCs and government controlled currencies uh, are are the the. The currencies that people use and certainly governments can put guns to people's heads and start forcing them to use these currencies but uh, really the state uh, the nation states around the world are going to be at an impasse because and we see this happening right now they're already looking at trying to push out cbdc's they're trying to uh, maybe ban cryptocurrencies we seem we've seen china try to ban mining crypto mining crypto exchanges uh, we see the inhospitable uh, regulatory environment in the u.s and so we're seeing uh, in the cryptocurrency ecosystem and technology at large, a uh, massive brain drain, right? The smartest people, the innovators, the entrepreneurs, the movers and the shakers in the space are moving to more hospitable jurisdictions to build out cryptocurrency, uh, to build out the ecosystem and the technologies 
where it's more hospitable and they know that men with guns are going to come knocking at their door simply because they're trying to run a fucking business, right? And this is a problem that a lot of companies have had. And now the so other go, so governments like the United States and China and, and some of the more stringent places for crypto for cryptocurrency, uh, India as well, which is basically uh, more or less has attempted to ban Bitcoin and cryptocurrencies outright. Uh, those places are going to suffer tremendously in their gross domestic product, in uh, their technological advancement, and they may even uh, relinquish their status as a quote-unquote first world country in, in, this, in the case of the U.S. and China. And though in that, all of that money, all of that uh, economic welfare, all of that humanitarian dignity and decency, uh, all of that innovation at the edges, all of that moves to jurisdictions that are more hospitable to cryptocurrency. So yeah, they want to be raging uh, and, and infuriated and, and they want to control everybody. But by the same token, the more they press back, the more we get that psychological reactance where uh, everything starts to bloom and blossom in other places that have opened uh, their hearts and their minds up uh, to crypto. So this is one of the things that I'm seeing as I move around the world and as I discuss crypto and as I analyze the space. And it's really a beautiful thing. And it really is a, a sign that the times are changing and that we really are in a, a financial, a state of financial evolution and a paradigm shift. And it's beautiful. It is, man. And the CBDCs, though, that's something we definitely need to be worried about. And I don't think people are are um, are educated enough on that. Um, you know, I think that a lot of people are like, oh, CBDC, this is like we're just going to have the American dollar, but it's going to be like Bitcoin, you know, <laughs> but it's it's not going to be like Bitcoin at all. You know, this is when we saw China implement it first and um, and they're slowly like in switching over their entire monetary system to that. And they they have these social credit scores over there. So their bank accounts are tied directly to how they live their lives. And um, that's just a scary notion, man. And And that's the. The benefit of Bitcoin is that it's anonymous or, and just cryptocurrency in general, not these central bank digital currencies, is that it's anonymous and that we we, uh, you know, you, you're, you're not subject to government uh, seizing it or anything like that. Unless you're on an exchange, you know, like Coinbase or Bittrex or something like that, where they've been able to go after these people with regulators. But um, as far as the an anonymity and, and the, um, you know, ability to, to maintain, um, you know, any type of monetary value. Uh, off the grid, that's cryptocurrency is where it's at. And that's going to be the the antidote to the poison that is this CBDC. <clears throat> yeah, and slight, slight uh, cor correction, Matt. So yeah, Bitcoin is pseudonymous, not com completely anonymous because if you, if you trans, so Bitcoin doesn't have any personal identifiers like name, social security number, et cetera, attached to the blockchain. Uh, but if you interact with a, an exchange where you have to KYC for anybody who doesn't know KYC means know right. your customer, then then uh, there's there's tools out there and they have begun to proliferate, which is a problem uh, called blockchain analytics or blockchain forensics, where and these tools are sophisticated enough where they can track uh, transactionality uh, across time and space on the blockchain uh, very quickly. Uh, very efficiently, and even some of the the so-called uh, mixing wallets like Wasabi Wallet, Samurai Wallet, etc., uh, can be uh, really really parsed and really understood by blockchain analytics, where they can tr even even trace through if the user makes a mistake. So th this is one one thing that does kind of ring true uh, about a cashless society that a lot of these cryptocurrencies can indeed be be traced. Uh, but there are there's good news alongside of this, right? There are actual uh, privacy enhancing and, and anonymous cryptocurrencies such as Monero. So if people uh, really value their 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 privacy, and I'm not saying that a lot of people think, oh, if you're a privacy fan, you you have something to hide, or or you're a quote unquote criminal, et cetera, et cetera. But there are some people who just are a huge, they're a huge fan of privacy. They don't want governments or corporations or anybody else meddling in their business. So they're going to use uh, anonymizing cryptocurrencies like Monero, which uses ring signature uh, technologies that are very, very difficult, uh, if not impossible to, to trace on the blockchain. Some companies like CypherTrace have made claims that they can track some Monero transactions in certain instances, but I haven't really seen any, any validation 
uh, of that while working in the space. And one of the things that I actually do is I'm a I'm a risk officer, so I, I help manage and mitigate the risk for our company. So one of the things that I have to be uh, educated and knowledgeable of is uh, blockchain analytics and forensics. Uh, but yeah, the, the one thing is there are anonymizing technologies that actually do work and those are out there and people can't access them. So even in a completely cashless, quote unquote, I don't think study will ever be totally cashless. There will be some kind of physical object, even even if it's attached to, say, a stable coin and the cryptocurrency ecosystem. But still, there are there are ways that people are going to be able to anonymize themselves and to remain private and only give up information when they want to give up that information. Uh, plus, as an aside, if we go away from cash, it's a lot more difficult to have a KYC information uh, shared between everybody and then to trace every single type of trans because there's going to be ha- there's going to be so many transaction in- transactions happening at such a fast pace that even the the most hardcore dedicated team of blockchain analysts working in the CIA headquarters trying to trace and manage every every person's uh, transaction is going to be very very difficult especially if not as much KYC information is being given up because we've gone uh, cashless and people are just using a uh, crypto. So there's a few different scenarios that we really have to game out in order to see how it plays out in the future if we do indeed go cashless. But at the end of the day, uh, you can anonymize yourself. You can be more private. And, and you. Can, but here's the thing. This is another issue that I have to address on the side. If you're doing anything online, you leave a digital footprint, right? Ross Ulbricht didn't get caught uh, you know, and we, we get we can get into Ross a little bit if you want. Uh, what he did is just create a platform and got given basically uh, two life sentences for it, which is absolute bullshit. But the way that he got caught wasn't through blockchain forensics. It wasn't through KYC. It was just that he had his email, his personal email, which he po- published somewhere. And then it got backtraced somehow to his uh, pseudonym, which was Dread Pirate Roberts, and that's how they were able to catch him because he left a digital crumb or a digital uh, footprint in the in the past that allowed someone to find him from his. Inter- it had nothing to do with with cryptocurrency uh, tracing or blockchain forensics, and it had everything to do with his digital uh, footprint that digital investigators uh, snuffed out online. So you can get if you're using, you might as well assume that if you're using the internet in some way that someone can probably trace back to you unless you're being extremely cautious and you're a security expert and a professional, you're using Linux, uh, you're using the the Tor network and onion routing, and you're using all these different technologies. And even then that doesn't guarantee or promise that you're going to stay anonymized online. Very difficult to do perfectly. Yeah. I would assume most of our audience is probably familiar with Ross, but if you're not go to freeross.org and check out his story. Certainly tragic. As Sterling said, I mean, uh, two life sentences and plus 40 years for building a website when, uh, you know, many criminals, including, you know, killers and, uh, world-class thieves have, uh, and drug dealers have gotten much lighter sentences, uh, certainly cruel and unusual punishment there. Um, I know we're starting to run out of time a little bit. Uh, you're a wealth of information, brother, and very much appreciate all your in-depth explanation. Um, I, I did want to touch on one last uh, point that we often hear from the conspiracy theorists, um, and maybe we could move on to a couple other things before we have to part ways. But uh, the one thing that I also hear almost as much as you know, Bitcoin's a plot for cashless society is that uh, Bitcoin was created by the NSA. Now, are there any dots that you've connected to actually confirm this, or is this just kind of like a wild theory? Um, I know, obviously, the, the white papers uh, traditionally have been uh, assumed to be written by uh, Satoshi Nakamoto. Um, so, I mean, is that like, have you heard anything that actually resonates with you as far as confirming that the NSA had anything to do with Bitcoin's creation? Yeah, this is another topic that has a lot of paths and a lot, a lot of different ways to think about it. Uh, but we, th- my notion is that no, it it was not created. My my thought is no, that it was not created by the NSA or any other government agency. Although there there is an interesting fact that um, SHA two fifty six and some of these other encryption technologies that. Bitcoin leverages were actually uh, in part created by uh, government agencies. 
Hmm. Right. But an, an interesting story to this. And I, I recommend reading Stephen Levy's work. I think he worked as a journalist for Wired for some time. Uh, he's written a lot about this, but there was this cypherpunk movement that really started in the in the 90s and into the into the 2000s and it was these guys who actually helped bring all of this encryption technology uh to to the public uh through a, a few different shenanigans uh, some some court cases and, and some concerns that government would use this technology against us but uh, it ended up that somebody both within the government and a private individual. Let's see, I'm trying to recall his name. There's a lot of individuals involved in the story, but uh, needless to say, the some of these technologies were discover, discovered simultaneously, uh, both in the in the back rooms uh, or the black chambers of the government, and then also in 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 private life. Right. So with the simultaneous discoveries, uh, it enabled people everyday people to have access to encryption technologies. And of course, uh, most everything that we do on the internet leverages some form uh, of in, in, encryption for security. So it is ubiquitous online now anyway, and it really allows the internet to function without encryption technologies. It just wouldn't. But so, some of these guys, I think uh, uh, Whitfield Diffie uh, was his name that really discovered one of these forms of encryption uh, mathematically. Uh, early on pr privately. I think he was a university uh, professor, professor started and he was also a crypto anarchist uh, and a cypherpunk and he started to spread these ideas around and then a few different uh, people who were specifically crypto anarchists. Uh, Timothy May who wrote the crypto anarchist manifesto was one of them and it was these guys who started talking about Bitcoin or the idea of digital cash uh, very early on and digital cash being used to destabilize nation states and the federal reserve systems. So really this, the, the guys who were thinking about digital cash early on, and I think David Chom was also one of them who developed a type of early digital cash that didn't end up uh, panning out. These guys are really the spiritual successors to whoever Satoshi Nakamoto was. And I've written about this in an article I wrote for Bitcoin.com some years ago called Bitcoin was built to incite peaceful anarchy. And I go through a bit of these stories, but these guys, the cypherpunks who originally started spreading around encrypted technologies, looking at using it uh, for more privacy, more securities, especially outside the nation state. These guys were talking about this tech uh, very early on. And if you put all the pieces of the puzzle together, it looks like they uh, and, and their whatever they did to enhance the field, their contributions were what really allowed for uh, Bitcoin and cryptocurrency to come into existence. It's very unlikely that the NSA or the CIA would create a technology that actually does not benefit them, right? We talked earlier about the ability to print out as much money as they want. Why would the NSA or the CIA create a technology that actually undermines and ha hamstrings their control over fiat currency just from a logical perspective that doesn't make sense sure they it, there's there's definitely more traceability in uh with digital assets than there are in cash like just raw cash but even with cash most transactions aren't even done in cash anymore they're 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 digital on some type of ledger even if the ledger has a single point of failure at a bank or whatever they can still trace all of those uh transactions so e either way that part doesn't matter uh, what does matter is that the guys who really envisioned the tech early on were crypto anarchists, cypherpunks, and they all came from sort of a libertarian, uh, Rothbardian tradition of thought. And that's my, that's in my mind where the technology really arose from, where, where, the, where the ideas or the idea space of the tech came from. Yeah, I, I do hope that is the case. And I hope in the, the future that uh, we, we do prove that to be true because it is very disruptive. It is counterculture. Uh, the significance and possibilities, you know, are much bigger than uh, the world that we know now that we've we've been embedded into through government. So let's, yeah, hope and pray that uh, it really has its roots established with that philosophical 
anarchism. Um, so uh, either one more question or we could talk about your book. I mean, how much how much time do you have and do you want to move on or? Yeah, I, I have a bit of time still. So, OK, I'm perfect. Good. So earlier in the month, Coinbase announced that they were blocking 25,000 Russia linked crypto addresses. Um, and that was kind of like a red flag to a, probably a lot of the normie crypto holders who uh, maybe don't have as much time and energy invested as we do. Uh, for those who hold any value uh, of crypto and aren't exactly technically savvy, what do you suggest to them as far as keeping their coins on exchanges? And if they're interested in pulling them out of exchanges, like what's the best storage? I've heard cold wallets are better, hot wallets. Uh, maybe you, you could just briefly explain the difference if you don't mind. Yeah, yeah, no problem. So it, it depends on how how much how many funds you have. But as a rule of thumb, if it's your life savings, like if you have your life savings on an exchange, and a lot of people actually do, or the lion's share of their uh, net worth is on, say, Coinbase or Polynex or Bittrex or any of these other centralized exchanges that manage your keys. As I said earlier, you obviously don't have those funds. What you what, what you would want to do probably is leverage a hardware wallet. A hardware wallet is just a device that uh, manages your keys. It's, it's your device. You hold the keys. Uh, but the only thing is it doesn't really touch uh, the Internet unless you plug it into your uh, laptop using a micro USB cable. And then at that point, you have to enter a pin code uh, to, to send out funds. So it's extremely secure. Uh, I, I personally recommend using Ledger Nano S. I've had my Ledger Nano S for some five years, maybe six now. It's never given me any problems. It's extremely secure. It's not, it's not going to touch the internet for some hacker to have access to, say, on my computer. Uh, so, and this is one of the downsides of, uh, say, having a a wallet on your phone or on your computer, is and they're perfectly fine for everyday transactions. Like maybe you want to keep a couple of bucks, up to a couple thousand bucks, on a wallet on your computer or on your phone. But your computer and your phone are more susceptible to hackers, and it's not that they can hack into crypto. Right, like hack into the blockchain and take your funds. That's impossible. But what does happen is people they get private wallets on their computer or on their phone, and if their phone gets hacked or someone finds access to their passwords, they can then access their funds and then send send them out. So they would then gain access to the private keys. Uh, and but it's fine if if you use your computer or your phone for wallets. I do all the time. Just don't store a whole bunch of money on it and make sure you're, you're, you stay relatively safe and you have a secure prep password. So wallets I recommend for phone and desktop are exodus.io or the Exodus wallet. It's a multi-asset wallet that is extremely functional. Uh, it's pretty safe in and of itself. And it, ha it has a ton of different coins you can store on it. I use it all the time. It's, it's really good for making payments as you go. If you're wanting to pay someone to do some work for you or you that you find a restaurant that you like that accepts crypto, uh, it's extremely versatile and it has a really, really good user interface. I would say it probably has one of the best user interfaces and is more user friendly than any other cryptocurrency wallet in the ecosystem. But you just have to be aware that if somebody hacks into your computer or your phone, phones are less susceptible to hacking, by the way, uh, simply because of the, the, the nature of how they of how they function and how hard it is to say hacking into an, an, an iPhone. Not as easy. Your computer, though, touches all kinds of things on the Internet. You can get key loggers where people can basically watch you type your password in remotely and then just gain access to your wallet. So you want to be very careful uh, using your desktop to manage funds. But if you understand the risks, by all means, do that. But uh, so so cold this would be what you call a hot wallet a hot wallet is your wallet that you're actually sending funds to and from and that is always mm. touching touching the internet okay. whereas cold storage is where a wallet is not touching the internet or at least not touching the internet as often uh, like a hardware wallet or if you're really a stickler you could go the uh, this is more challenging but you could have just a paper wallet where you literally just have your keys your private keys on a piece of paper with a QR code that you could scan to uh, constitute somewhere to, or to send funds out. But if you lose your private keys, which are on paper, it's gone. And you, what you always want to do is protect your, your private keys. Private keys are, 
what allows you to access your private keys are usually 12 or 24 words that any of these wallet applications will give you upon signing up and you want to write those down you want to you want to, no one else should see you write those down you should store those in a very safe place that no one has access to maybe you even find ways to encipher or encrypt your own private keys in case someone does find them because if they do find them then they get access to your private keys and then they can send funds out of your wallet no matter where they're at if they have access to the to the internet Gotcha. That's a, that's a perfect explanation. And yeah, I, th I think that's kind of what I was uh, assuming was the case as far as cold and hot wallets. Um, it sounds like the cold wallets, maybe a little bit more of an investment for long-term. Um, but no, I'd, I'd appreciate you clarifying that. So I, I do have a quote here from your book, uh, which is called Dignity and Decency, Rhapsodic Musings of a Modern Anarchist. And uh, I believe it was released in October of last year. So uh, the quote is, distrusting the system is not about hatred and loathing, bombs or bloodshed. It's about uncovering peaceful solutions such as compassionate anarchism and the cryptocurrency revolution. So uh, can you share something, uh, share with us about how this exciting endeavor came about and, uh, and, and how it's been doing? Yeah, sure. So the, the book is... A really eclectic works of about seven to ten years worth of libertarian anarchist crypto anarchist thought that uh, it the it, I was really jarred in when was it in 2017 or 2018 it was when Alex Jones got scrubbed from the internet basically he was removed from all of his social media channels and from YouTube in sort of a concerted effort by large tech and at, at this time i had all of my material all of my writing all of my thoughts everything was pretty much in a single point of failure in facebook right all of my work and if it wasn't on facebook it was articles on my website which were all all could potentially be targets of censorship at any time so i got i told my wife cecilia i said what i really need to just put all this material that I've written. It's super valuable. It took me a lot of time, 10 years worth of work together in one place. And that was the beginning of the idea for dignity and decency. I started to compile with uh, Cecilia, all of this material together in a doc. And then over the course of three years, organizing and arranging the material, I actually uh, hired Carrie Wedler, who you guys I'm pretty sure have worked with is an awesome person. Uh, she worked with me for two years on the the project of editing all of this material and then re-editing and make sure it was organized in the most in, in the way that made the most sense right and finally we finished uh it's we, yeah we just finished last year and through my relationship with derek bros who's a really good friend of mine an extremely hard worker in the space he introduced me to uh, his book publisher who published his books, uh, the, the Conscious Resistance Trilogy, the publisher is called Discovery Publisher. And I showed them my manuscript after Carrie had done all the editing and Cecilia and I had done a, a big chunk of the organizing over the course of three to four years. Uh, they agreed to publish the book and uh, they, they loved it. So they pub published two versions of it, a hardback or a hardcover version and a paperback version of the book. I also have NFT versions of the books, by the way. But uh, the book is really a, a sprawling odyssey uh, that goes into my my mind and my thought from the past seven to ten years, and it really is about uh, an, an introduction to anarchism and freedom. And the second part's on uh, compassion, empathy, and its role in creating freer societies. And then the third part is on is really my early thoughts on cryptocurrency, and Bitcoin, and how that all really ties back into creating freer. Uh, more loving societies. That's the journey, really. Right. Absolutely. And uh, that's something that you could buy at your website, which is sterlingluhan.com, uh, right? Not sterling. Let's make that clear. And uh, it's also on Amazon, right? Yes, it is on Amazon as well. And yes, I you can buy it on my website. And actually, that's how I prefer uh, people buy it because I get more of the, uh, the percentage of the book from my websites. It's uh, sterlingluhan.com. Yep. Yeah, man, that uh 2018 when they took Alex Jones off off the 
basically just scrubbed him from the internet. Um, you know, obviously he's persisted since then, but we saw that as a huge wake up call as well. I think we even wrote an article a couple of days later saying like, they just took down Alex Jones. We're going to probably be next. And yeah, sure enough, I, I share that trauma with you. You know, we've, we've trauma bonded when, uh, both of our, our pages were taken down at the same time in that, uh, fateful day in October, 2018. And we lost uh, nearly 6 million fans. And I, I, now I, I'm speculating here, but I'm pretty sure because I was associated as an editor or a moderator on your page that there's a good chance that for whatever reason, they thought that I was, I don't know, uh, complicit and they, they took down your page as well. I mean, that's obviously uh, speculation. We don't know exactly what happened, but uh, that was some of the speculation from quite a few different page owners at the time who also had all their their pages taken down. Uh, it, it seemed like I was the hot button and uh, Facebook was just trying to eradicate anybody's page that I had uh, access to. So I hope that's not the case. I don't, I don't know if we've really ever uh, spoken on that and really got to the bottom of it. But it, I mean, if it was the case that, you know, I obviously sincerely apologize. Uh, although I know I was helping you here and there with, with posts and some Photoshop uh, work bro, and no, stuff. No, no, no need to even uh, apologize. It's, I mean, you might've definitely been in their, their crosshairs, but even if you wouldn't have been on, on the page, I'm pretty sure we were all at risk. And of course the censorship is still happening today. People are having their pages uh, removed, uh, all kinds of different pages and it's uh, a real tragedy. So yeah, don't, uh, no harm, no foul in that uh, shit definitely happens, but we've all kept pressing forward, uh, moving along, building, creating, and still doing yes. what we can to generate uh, value and speak truth to power for people who who absolutely need it. So, yeah, exactly, man, it, exactly. And I think that's their worst fear is that they take us down, they do everything they can to disempower us, to deplatform us, and instead we just double down and we double our efforts and we come back with a vengeance. And that's pretty much what we've done. I think both in our our different journeys here, different types of work that we're doing, but. uh Thank you so much for coming on today, dude. You're, like I said, a wealth of information, man. And I'm glad we could address many of these topics that and clarify many of these concerns and questions that seem to be kind of plaguing the online discourse when it comes to Bitcoin and its potential and possibilities. So, um, yeah, man, you're an all-star, uh, very ex extremely articulate and a wonderful orator for liberty. So uh, thanks so much for your time today. And, and we'll definitely have to have you back on again. No problem, man. I love you guys. Really appreciate c coming on. It's been a while since we've got to interface and this was uh, an amazing experience. Thank you.